Star Wars Legacy.html is brought to you by the fine folks at Cage Club. So for all things podcasts, movies, music, media, and more, head on over to cageclub.me or like, subscribe, and follow on all of your favorite social media and podcasting services. Legacy.html. Pew, pew, pew. We are amazingly at the halfway point of the Clone Wars saga this bonus episode. Kind of, sort of, yeah. We will be discussing from the Star Wars Chronological Episode Watch List, entries 62 through 69. <laughs> and with 133 episodes of the Clone Wars plus the movie, it actually did just so happen that the midpoint of this series falls around what is both the chronological and airing episode number 66 the third season finale. It's really a beautiful thing that this is sort of around where Ahsoka kind of like comes into her own and, you know, Clone Wars wouldn't stop going away and coming back. And Star Wars as a fandom has some trouble letting go of some things. So it kind of makes sense that they would have trouble letting go of Clone Wars, as it were. And I find that like, it just kept getting this reprieve, this reprieve really interesting because they couldn't have known, you know, four continuations later that this was the midway point, but it's a fascinating turn point for Ahsoka and the characters involved, especially on the heels of the Mortis arc. I agree and I love that you said that about Ahsoka letting go. It really reframed a lot of the episodes we're going to be talking about here, like just now. The first story we are going to be talking about is a three-part arc starting with season three, episode 18, The Citadel. All three of these episodes are written by Matt Michnevets, who will go on to write several more episodes of the Clone Wars, as well as writing for Star Wars Rebels. This first entry is directed by Kyle Dunleavy, and I was kind of disappointed because at first I thought this was going to be a lot more stuff about hyperspace lanes, because that's what the mission was about, to get that information. And then it it wasn't. It was just about Master Peel, who is a very adorable looking creature. Yeah, the Nexus route goes through the Separatist and Republic space, and that's actually like pretty key to the story we're discussing, but it manages to not seem that important at all. And neither does the fact that the Citadel, this prison that they are breaking into, was specifically designed to hold rogue Jedi and has been occupied by Separatist forces, which is why the Jedi need to now break into their own prison that they don't have any updated records on the design of. Good job, bros. And, you know, it's one of those really complicated situations where there's no way to look at it really truly objectively is it great that the separatists have a jedi exclusive prison camp no but i'm pretty sure that the republic has some unsavory prison camps of their own and a huge element of this podcast that we're going to discuss is the inherent hypocrisy that comes along with almost every bad guy in this run of episodes so much you did this to me so now i'll kill you but you did it first asshole yeah i mean technically this is a republic 
prison that they just took off the Republic's hand. And it's not like the Jedi go running in with scarves. The Jedi don't go running in and just like rub you gently with silk charmeuse to get you to stop being bad. They stab you with a fiery laser sword. And speaking of Ahsoka, she finally has her dual lightsabers that she's so iconic for. Her and Ventress are so iconic for these little cute lightsabers and like two of them! And she finally has them, which for me is a relief because I kept being like, does it, is it, what show? Give me the, what? You can see where they're trying to start Ahsoka's narrative of pulling away from the Jedi Order, but it feels a little bit sharp, to be honest. All of a sudden, Ahsoka is freaking out about Anakin not trusting her and being overly protective and saying how it's not for him to decide when and how I should be put in danger. It actually is literally his job. You haven't even been a Padawan for two years. He was a Padawan for a full decade before he was given his own student and that sort of agency. And I just feel like if you aren't happy, then maybe you shouldn't be a nun after all, little Maria. And I mean, technically, I believe he is her superior military officer. And as such, that is actually the nature of their hierarchical Jedi relationship. It really is. But I guess if things aren't going to make sense around here, we might as well throw in a little bit of carbonite freezing for good measure. A little bit of carbonite in my life. Uh, No. No, a little bit of carbonite is a thorn in my side. As a mostly casual Star Wars fan, yeah, okay. Them just being like, so we're just gonna carbonite ourselves. Chill? Sure. Alright. Like, so casual. Like, they're not even hot coffee or iced coffee on a cool summer evening by the beach on your way home from Asbury. Like, they're just like, no, that's that's carbonite. Like, it's weird, right? It already bothered me on the level of episode five, Empire Strikes Back, clearly treats it as though they are not certain if a human can survive a carbonite freezing process. And that's over two decades after this episode. But it clashes with expanded universe canon in the first place in the form of a Clone Wars graphic novella called The Clone Wars Shipyards of Doom, which is a fantastic title. But like, I I, I don't know, it upsets me. It's one thing for the Mandalorian to feature Mando carbon freezing someone after the Empire Strikes Back, because sure, that's, you know, after Han Solo survived, and I'm sure there were tales of it, the way there are so many tales of our little rebel band from the original trilogy. But here, uh, mm, 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 it upsets me. Speaking of upsetting, I was not upset by Ahsoka challenging Anakin by way of the development of her agency. I really like that she has this great sense of character judgment, but that is probably the only real character development I wind up getting from this episode. I actually think this episode was better served by the previously on Clone Wars news narrative that comes in the next episode because I honestly walked away from this episode thinking it was a bunch of cute lines and one really significant cameo. Well, I guess more than a cameo. Gestario. Oh, do you mean K2B2, the Kobe Bryant droid? No, but he was like spectacular in every way. Oh, you mean O.C. Sobek, the prison warden. No, I think I mean Mon Moff Grand Tarkin Chino. 
Ah, uh, yes, not yet, but future Grand Moff Wilhuff Tarkin. The ones in future Moff? <laughs> Wait, no, is Moff part of his name? No, Grand Moff is a title. I'll talk about it more when we get there, but he's actually only a Grand Moff for like a week before he dies, which is hilarious. So his name is Wilhelm Scream Tarkin, and he is not yet the Grand Moff. Yes, but funny enough, the person who's doing his voice here, Stephen Stanton, has so far done the voice of Mas Ameda, the Senate council member. All these words just sound the same. Mas Armenos, the council member. Marina Menounos joined the Senate. And this has been your Movie Minute with Grandma Tarkin. This has been your Movie Minute with Grandma Maria Menounos. On a still silly but slightly more serious note, <laughs> I, ac- I actually, for most of this episode, thought that O.C. Sobek was, had to, had to be voiced by the same person who played Mr. Martino from Daria because he sounded so much like him and like, seriously, he even did the same eye twitch at times. But no, it is James Arnold Taylor who does the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Clone Wars series. I guess just channeling the fuck out of Mr. Martino. Just Jat reminding us where it's at. Every time I see the name James Arnold Taylor, I think that I'm seeing James Michael Tyler, who played Gunther on Friends. So I keep thinking that Gunther from Friends is the voice of Obi-Wan Kenobi. And frankly, it it doesn't not fit. But still not to be confused with Jesse Tyler Ferguson or Brian Stokes Mitchell. Cam Winston. Cam Winston! For as unhappy as I am to see Wilhuff Tarkin being a character, unfortunately we have him for two more episodes. The next episode, season three, episode 19, Counterattack, was directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And um, I'm pretty bothered by the fact that the Star Wars chronological episode order list has it written as two words, but everywhere else on the internet and, you know, the English language has Counterattack has one word. Somebody even went in and edited this list to put in the link to every Clone Wars episode and didn't fix it when they did that. So now my Clone Wars episode list has all these mistakes. It's fine. I'll fix it. The part about this episode that I think had me shiggled the most is like, so I've made it very clear where I stand on Dooku. I am down on the count, but I actually really thought like Sobek was like just like a big bag of shit. Like he was just such a fucking stupid bad guy in like a good way. Like he was the cartoon bad guy you need him to be to support the narrative. And at the same time, I loved Dooku being like, I'm going to make a house call and kill your friends. I honestly keep forgetting that Dooku was even in this arc. I think because I was just so entertained by how ludicrous Sobek was that I, in my head, conflated the actual, like, plot parts that Dooku contributed to Sobek. Because frankly, even though he was supposed to be a good guy, Grand Moff Tarkin's appearance in this episode and knowing that he is one of the most iconic Star Wars Wars villains conflated him with that role in my head while we were watching, I guess? I don't know. Well, they don't do a very good job making Tarkin at all believable as a good guy. Like, he's such a fucking creep from the beginning. Like, TLC Radiohead levels of creep. Right, and I was really distracted by Annie and Soka sniping at each other so much, and um, by how many clone troopers died in this arc. It was, like, upset setting at a certain point what was my final count something like seven there's actually a note in the wikipedia that in the episode previous from this one aside from commander cody 
Captain Rex, Echo, and Fives, there were only four other clones accompanying the rescue team. One was killed by an electromine, while another was shot to death by an electrified wall, leaving only two clones left. However, in this episode, even though the remaining two clones were also killed by a security door and O.C. Sobek respectively, another clone was seen accompanying the team, showing that five clones had accompanied the team, despite the fact that only four were seen when the team was shown in the previous episode. So they had to, like, invent other clones to keep killing more clones in this episode. It really does devalue the quality of the clones that every time I see them be like, oh, no, but that was a good man, and now he's dead. Like, stop piling bodies. Give me something to care about. Shock value only goes so far, especially when you've removed the idea that they're real people by making them not just clones, but by putting this in a in an animated format. It really takes a lot of the teeth out of the murder. So the more you just kind of pile on dead clones, the more I'm like, you know, the Republic was just piling the bodies. Right. And it's one of those things that, as usual, just really makes you question the Republic's motives and methods in terms of this war. It's one of the things I found most fascinating about the exchange between Anakin and Tarkin discussing the Jedi's methods and frankly about how they have a point that the Jedi were supposed to be peacekeepers, not soldiers, and probably should not be the people running this war. And so many things throughout this arc were so on the nose while I was so grossed out by Anakin bonding with Tarkin. I was also really bothered by how frequently they seemed to need to recap everything we had both already covered and a majority of the series in a lot of ways. Every couple of minutes they were like, oh, so this is what's happening. Sometimes even going as far as to have droids have conversations with R2 in a very, oh, what? So this is the plot kind of way. And I was unmoved by the lack of creativity on that. Part of me enjoyed R2 reprogramming battle droids because like it amuses me and you know, R2 is such a little genius. But then, you know, if R2 is such a little genius, why isn't he doing more of that? You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the rocket legs thing. And you know, there were plenty of us seeing the rocket legs in this arc. Every now and then he's like, oh, there's a rock and I don't feel like trying to drive around it. Just gonna jump it. You know, R2 even gets a kill in the third part of this arc. But for me, I think one of my frustrations is the amount of times where I felt like they were buying time. Obviously, if they had to break into the prison planet, they're gonna have to break out of the prison planet. That's just, it's literally meant to keep Jedi in. So the idea that they wouldn't have to immediately break out, like it just, it doesn't show complete thought on the part of the Jedi, perhaps even that that was not, oh, well, don't forget, we're gonna need a way out too. I know things don't go the way they are planned, but it does feel like the Jedi are incapable of force thought at times in a way that explains a lot of how one irritating old man with bad teeth was able to take them down. And they even go out of their way to hammer the complete breakdown of leadership at the end of this arc when Ahsoka is left with half of the information about the hyperspace route and Grand Moff Tarkin has the other and there is a disagreement on how the information should be handled and you know I'd say I'm surprised that that didn't come up at all in conversation on their way home from this mission but you know that just speaks to 
what little connection there is between the Jedi and the Senate. You know what I mean? Everything was done in such specific vacuums and kept so poorly communicated. And that was an exploitable weakness in the structure of this ridiculous intergalactic government. As a final note, though, I liked the visual design of the Citadel. I thought the cracked open planet with the exposed core was a really cool visual concept and something we don't really see a lot in Star Wars for some reason. Most Star Wars planets are just very basic and round. They focus a lot more on creating dynamic ground landscapes than they do on appearance from space, but the Citadel design really reminded me of the sort of thing that I loved from Netflix's Voltron Legendary Defender. There were a lot of interesting galactic designs on that animated series, and it was cool seeing something like that here in Star Wars. The next arc was a two-parter that served as the finale of season three, both written by Bonnie Mark and directed by Dave Filoni, starting with season three, episode 21, Padawan Lost. You know, after Evan Peel died and, you know, had to be, like, baby carried by Ahsoka and, you know, he melted and gave her all of the information. And, you know, you could even almost see Annie being like, you know, I don't know about lava, you know, right? This two-parter had to be about Ahsoka, who has gone through so much growing. It's weird to think that Ahsoka is the main character of the animated series that stars Anakin and Obi-Wan. But in so many ways, I feel like Clone Wars is from Ahsoka's perspective. And knowing that the midway point focuses so heavily on her really reinforces those feelings for me. And when you say it like that, I do completely agree that this two-parter or whatever story that followed the Citadel needed to focus on Ahsoka, especially as the third season of this series closed out and they started to push in the direction of her forging her own path. I just think that this specifically as this story was a very odd choice. When I looked to Bonnie Mark as an artist. I was surprised to learn that she served as a writer and a producer for a ton of crime dramas, including Homicide, Life on the Streets, Third Watch, and NYPD Blue. So I'm not exactly sure where the decision to do this Predator slash, I don't know, Island of Dr. Monroe type hunting people story. Yeah, I did not need the underground New York lizard people society to go all predator on a bunch of children because like that's even the dumbest part of this two-parter for me i like a lot of things about it but the crux focus of it is this group of people that hunt i'm sorry this group of lizard aliens that hunt jedi younglings as a rite of passage and to that extent they must recognize them then as some great event to kill a jedi youngling so they recognize their power and their prowess okay so then if to kill one is to be a great thing You can't exactly think that a Jedi youngling is like beneath you. You have to accept that it is some great powerful creature. So you can't. So then, yeah, a Jedi youngling killing your son in self-defense, you don't get to be a shitball. And that's like the fucking crux of this two-parter. This guy is like, no, you killed my son and now you got to die. And like, no, you were hunting them. You were hunting children. You have literally no leg to stand on. Your customs are archaic. You literally abduct children to hunt them. Shut the fuck up. You don't deserve kids. Yeah, I wasn't really... Really expecting this 
focus on Trandoshan culture. The only member of that species that I can vividly remember is from episode 5 Empire Strikes Back and the being let out more of a snarl than full English words. It's yet another case of an alien race from Star Wars who all of a sudden out of nowhere speaks perfect English when in the movie series they had to be subtitled. Big surprise. And yeah, I really did love at the beginning though Ahsoka's expression of more annoyance than upset that she is going to be hunted for sport because that's really how I feel about it. To balance each other out, these two episodes needed to first give us an engaging and delightful new character to then fridge, and then give us an amazing, wonderful cameo to make it all better. So first, we got the Jedi Padawan character of Khalifa. I liked her right away, so I knew she couldn't be around for very long. Right? And like, at what point do you learn to stop doing this. One of the things that definitely stood out to me about this episode was it had all the hallmarks of a classic 1980s sitcom two-parter where you meet it's like Jet. It's like Jet from Avatar where, you know, this person comes in and they're this dynamic, super cool person, but then they gotta die. Bye, Jet. Bye-bye. And then we get our precious fuzzy boy. We get Chewie. Chewie shows up. Hey, Chewie. He made it. Hey, buddy. I even knew Chewie was going to appear, especially by the episode title being Wookie Hunt, but I I ended up way happier when I saw him than I thought I would be. He's just such a great, cool, chill guy. And um, it's hard to ever have a problem when Chewie shows up. He added some interesting levity to the story just by virtue of being there. I love that his technological ability was played up and that, you know, he worked on the transmitter that saved the day. And I did not see the Wookiees ultimately coming through and being the good guys that got in and like helped. Like that blew my mind. Fuck yeah, Wookiees. I think that was one of the best touches that I have seen the Clone Wars add to a story. Like I would probably add that to my top 10 Clone Wars moments at the end of all of this because I think that that was such an empowering moment for the Wookiees. A lot of people do kind of just treat Chewbacca like he's the dog or the ape man who is just, you know, whatever. But Chewie is time and again shown to be very technologically intelligent and his people are shown not to be underestimated. I can't fly a spaceship. I can't speak Wookiee. Do Wookiee speak Wookiee? I don't know, but I feel like we will be told at some point. Until I saw that it was the midpoint of the series and a season finale and episode 66, I thought the scene between Anakin and Ahsoka at the end was a little too was a little too spotlit. I guess because it was the season finale, it makes a lot of sense. I think it's interesting how pointed it is that it is technically the midpoint of the franchise. And I kind of expected more from what would then be the next story. So for the season four premiere to be this giant Mon Calamari story, it felt like a very sharp turn to me. That did not feel like 
like the follow-up to Ahsoka having to self-defend murder herself. Well, murder in self-defense for her own safety. This didn't feel like the follow-up to that in any way. And I just, I gotta, Mon Calamari and their fucking calamari. I can't. It's it's really, I don't like it. Season four began with a sort of loose arc all written by Jose Molina, who is the writer of such Firefly episodes as Trash and Ariel, as well as being a writer more recently on Vampire Diaries and Agent Carter. The first episode was directed by Dwayne Dunham, the previously mentioned Star Wars editor and David Lynch collaborator. Season four, episode one, Water War was, um, you know, I, I kind of like underwater stuff, but it's a little like Mario levels, a little bit goes a long way, and at a certain point, the premise wears a little bit thin. I honestly only had three really big takeaways from this arc as a whole, and two of them are pretty much right off the bat in the first part. Number one, the wetsuits are ridiculous, and this is one of those stories that would look real, real weird in live action. Very much so. Whether it's them on the surface wearing just the wetsuit hoods so they look like they're on some kind of intense Republic water polo team, or they're underwater themselves, like seeing Natalie Portman in a diving suit in, in, in surrounded by fish people under actual water, I think it would have just been painful, to be honest. I completely agree. My second point is kind of an A-B thing. I find the character of Prince Lee Char kind of ridiculous. Number one, Lee Char, Charlie, Charles, Prince Charles. I, I, I see it. I think I'm right. I, I understand Kevin's about to come in with a fact that is otherwise correct, but I think I'm right. Well, what's funny is he was actually named for the star-kissed tuna, Charlie the Tuna. So Lee Char is Charlie, but a different Charlie. So I don't know that they even knew that they were doing it, but that was where our heads went immediately when we heard Lee Char. I think that makes more sense, but you know. And then my B point on this second point is why does every other Mon Calamari sound vaguely Donald Duckian, and then this guy comes in sounding totally normal? Like, Prince Lee Char is a reverse Donald Duck syndrome, where like everybody else in Duckburg sounds like a normal celebrity now, and Donald Duck only gets to sound like Don Cheadle on the best date. I did note that too. I thought that Lee Char sounded a lot like Danny Pudi from Community, but actually Lee Char is voiced by Adam MacArthur, who would go on to play Princess Marco Diaz on Star vs. the Forces of Evil. Star? Yes. I think as far as I'm aware, this is the earliest we have seen Akbar in his timeline, here being a captain and saying that things are attacks instead of traps because we just can't leave anything the fuck alone. So we have to make a young Admiral Akbar say it's an attack. <sighs> so what did we think about Shark Guy? I was not a fan. I did think he was, uh, I'm trying to think. Well, I thought he was pretty stupid. Yeah, I was not a fan. And, you know, it was part of it that I guess got to me was this was kind of like a cool throwback to the Fisto underwater episode of Gendy Clone Wars. Right. But it kind of wasn't. I feel like a lot of stuff wasn't there that I liked from that, despite being expanded greatly. It was great to see Ahsoka, Fisto, Rex. The invincible hydroid Medusa monster was okay. 
The Quarren people were okay. But, you know, Shark Man, this shark attack looked like a maniac. And I think it's another of the failings of it being an animated series and not really thinking certain things all the way through. The scene where he's smashing his head into the glass tube to get at Prince Lee Char. I just, first of all, you have to imagine that that hurts. But second of all, imagine a human person doing that. It comes across as a little silly on top of already being a show about underwater aliens using laser swords. And after the pleasant revelation that the Wookiees were behind the rescue in the last episode, I was kind of hoping that the Quarren, as much as I didn't care for them, were not directly connected to Dooku. Like, at this point, maybe they were, like, on their path there, but no, they were already, like, they're deep in cahoots with the Separatists scum, the, the wretched hive of scum and crappity. And instead, we get to see a cavalry cameo in the form of a different classic Star Wars alien species, the Gungans. Yay. I actually do like who Jar Jar has grown into, and there have been a number of episodes where they worked hard to make this drunken monk-style character really interesting, but the Gungans by and large are still deeply problematic, uncomfortable, and not well fleshed out as much as they are used as a punchline and when you're using a racial stand-in as a punchline you really need to consider the language i did love the underwater twister scene like i could not stop laughing about the like i just keep thinking oh it's wizard of oz it's a twister it's a twister and that's a shark witch of the water world Oh, I loved it. And I loved the underwater battle scenes. I think that that really helped keep up the pacing of these episodes. Season 4, Episode 2, Gungan Attack, was directed by Brian Kalen O'Connell. And Season 4, Episode 3, Prisoners, was directed by Dan Kelly. And I think that they, along with Dwayne Dunham, did some amazing stuff to keep us as engaged as possible with a concept that can get sort of thin. And part of the way they managed to make it keep lively was by relying on certain elements of Star Wars. I guess I'd never realized how much lightning is seen as a source of power in the Star Wars universe. Like with X-Men, I constantly think of like psychics who manifest some sort of psychic raptor, not necessarily just Gene with the Phoenix, but everybody's got like a big energy creature thing they do. And that's like a really X-Men-y thing. And it seems like if you want to show that you are powerful in Star Wars, you use lightning of some kind. Whether it's force lightning, under water zappy cannon lightning what is it like sloppy jelly tendril lightning you do it unless you're a gungan in which case you have some kind of special spit or you're a quarren in which case apparently you can ink we have seen the quarren a lot in star wars canon already and i had no idea that those creatures can ink awesome and why not animation is a great opportunity to show off the limitlessness of your universe we had talked at times about how when something switches formats goes from TV to movie, movie to comic, comic to novel. Your format changing alters the way your budget works and the feasibility of certain things. Maybe they were always meant to ink and there was just no way to make them cool. So to complete the Lion King metaphor that is this three-part arc, we have Sharkman screaming that he killed Lee Char's father and then Lee Char being crowned with, of course, some sort of seashell crown because why not? Do you want to be a fish superstar and live large in a big house like Prince? Lee Char. Well, you gotta do the brine. It's unbelievable to me the number of times they go for film parallels because everything about this, I just kept being like, okay, no Leia, crown him. No Leia yet, right? But this feels like an underwater level version of the end of the first movie. Okay. You guys love 
of your parallels. At the halfway point of Clone Wars, I feel closer to the Star Wars universe than I did before. I, you know, and it's one of those things. It's like any relationship. You have to figure out if you're okay with the things you don't like about the person to keep it in your life. And the more I find out about Star Wars, I guess the more I find the balance of the things I like and don't like have stayed the same. So in that regard, Star Wars really is all about balance. The deeper I get, the more I find that I am a fan of the same percentage of the things I know. (laughs) I think I really agree with that statement. It's just that there is more of it to explore and it's not all going to make you happy and some of it is going to be really surprisingly impressive and engaging and ultimately worthwhile. So it's more a question of do you love Star Wars enough to continue taking in more even knowing that, you know, it's not all better, it's just more. Well, until we return to take in that more, Kevo, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevo Reilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y, and on the Facebook page for this lovely program, Husbands Talking More or Less, at Real Nico Kevo Action. You can also find the super cool, super fun, super inclusive superhero stories that we've created over at KidRideComics.com. Nico, where can the folks at home find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like X's for Podcast, which drops Mondays and Thursdays, Modern Mondays, Throwback Thursdays, where we're covering all aspects of the X-Men universe. Don't forget to check this show out. Tuesdays is our normal day with occasional bonus Fridays. You can also find me over on Instagram at NicoAction. You can also find me over on Instagram and Twitter at NicoAction, N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And guys, remember the world is changing. The conversation is evolving. You need to be listening and making sure to pass the mic to the people who haven't had it before. Remember to be part of the change. Black lives matter, and we can't let anybody fall through the system. And until then, well, and until we come back, guys, keep those kyber crystals lit. May the force be with you and also with your force ghost. Thank you.